of our series that's fairly new. We just started a couple of weeks ago. And it's called a Roadmap for Raw Christians. And the context of that, remember, is the church at Corinth. This was consisting of, of a lot of brand new believers that were coming out of a culture that was saturated in pagan idolatry and sexual immorality. And they, they were coming out of that. They knew the basics, but they were not mature in Christ yet. So they were raw. They were raw Christians. And this is essentially, this letter from Paul is a roadmap from how to get from point A, a raw Christian, to point be a mature believer. So we're going to be picking up our series in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16, and before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear your word. Father, we want to understand this passage, and we also want to be able to apply it in our way of life, in our thinking, in our way of following you. So that's our prayer this morning, Father. Help us to understand and apply your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It is common for people to have to return a package now and then. If you've bought something online and then you get it home and decide that you want to return it, part of that process is answering the question, why? Why do you want to return it? If you want your money refunded, you have to ask the, answer the question, why? It's part of the process. They will not let you continue until you've given them a reason why. And sometimes they make it easy with the drop-down menu. And here are some of the reasons why, you're not, why, why you might be returning something. Number one, no longer needed. Inaccurate website description. Item defective or does not work. Bought by mistake. Product damaged. Item arrived too late. Missing or broken parts or wrong item sent. Those are all valid reasons for returning a package. In 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16, through 16, the Apostle Paul is talking about the things of God. He says wisdom, or he describes them as wisdom, or the things of God, the truth of God. And it's not just one piece of information. It's not just Jesus is Lord. It's, it's a whole comprehensive, we're going to call it package, of spiritual truth from God. And he says this package has been sent from God, and it is given to his people. It is received by them, and they understand it and believe it. But, Paul says, the natural person, or the unbeliever, does not accept this package. The unbeliever does not receive it. In fact, they they reject the truth of God. And the reason unbelievers reject God's package of spiritual truth is not because it's no longer needed, or because the package was defective, or because this package of, of God's spiritual truth was missing or parts or had broken pieces. Unbelievers reject the package of spiritual truth because, Scripture says, they do not understand it. It's not an intelligence thing. It's it's not that they're not smart enough to figure it out or to understand it. And it's not a miscommunication thing. It's not that the message is garbled, that they can't hear it over the traffic noise. It's a spiritual thing. So we want to understand this passage, as always, we want, we want to work our way through this verse by verse. We want to understand what is said here. At no point should anybody 
be leaving here saying, well, he never talked about that, or I didn't understand this verse. We're, we're going to understand it. But then we're also going to answer this one question, and that's this. How does someone make the jump from rejecting this package of the truth of God to receiving this package and believing it? How do we make the jump? So let's go ahead and read. This is chapter, chapter 2, starting at verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So we're picking up at at verse 6, and if you remember from last week, the, the message was unlearn. It was talking about unlearning the worldliness that these raw Christians had been absorbing their whole lives. Paul said, you need to unlearn that. But he ends, if you look up at verse 5, he says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So he ended on that note. He ended by saying, look, I don't want anybody following Christ because, uh, you know, a very persuasive or smooth talker convinced them that this was a good idea. I don't want anybody following Christ as, uh, as part of a, an emotional knee-jerk response to, to something they heard. I want people following Christ because the gospel was delivered and the Spirit of God brought them to faith. So he ended on that note and said, no, it's not about the wisdom. But then he starts on verse 6 and he says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. So he's kind of, he's, he's dovetailing off the end of that verse. And we need to unpack the very beginning of this. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. So who is he talking about when he says the mature? Is this you know, unbelievers and believers and then the third group of people, or is this some kind of wholly different kind of Christian? I mean, who, who are the mature? Well, once again, the immediate context is helpful. If you look down at the beginning of chapter 3, he talks about infants, and he uses that word to describe the believers who had formed groups and were squabbling over who the best teachers were. That were he brought that up in chapter 1. So the infants in Christ were those who were immature in Christ. So very quickly we understand this is what he's talking about. He's saying there are immature believers and there are mature believers. So he's making a, a difference there. He's saying, look, immature believers are those 
believers in Corinth and anywhere else for that matter, who are in Christ, they're saved, but they have not yet unlearned the worldliness that, that is all around them. They, they've not yet realized that everything they do must pass through this filter of being in Christ. Immature believers are, are not yet able to clearly see the difference between the things of the world and the things of God. So they're not applying the truth of God, and so they're not, they're not seeing it make a big impact on how they live from day to day. Immature believers. So mature believers are the ones who have unlearned worldliness. Mature believers do see a difference between the things of God and the things of this world. And mature believers are applying the truth of God. So it is making a difference in their day-to-day living. We can open it up to the wider biblical context to get a little bit more light shed on what he means by these two categories of immature and mature believer. Let's go to Hebrews 5, 13 and 14, where he uses a lot of the same language. He talks about child, infant, mature, immature. It says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So unskilled, once again, he's talking about believers, but he's making a difference between immature and mature. And the, the un, immature believers are unskilled, or could also be translated as inexperienced or unaccustomed. The NIV says not acquainted with the word of righteousness. In other words, raw Christians. Raw Christians. We need to be careful. This is, this is not two-tiered Christianity. This is not um, teaching that there are two uh, types or, or two um, levels of, of Christians in the sense that we need to divide the church. And, and No, we're all believers. We're all believers. This is simply recognizing that even though there are many genuine believers, not everybody is in the same place with their level of spiritual maturity. And I think we understand that naturally. I, we, I think we see that modeled in the world for us all around. I mean, we, we think about people in general. I mean, people start off young and it takes years to grow to maturity. We start off in kindergarten. We don't expect somebody to be in 12th grade the next day. It takes time. Or, or, or the, the, the brand new employee, first day on the job. Are they really going to do the job as effectively Do they know where everything is? Do they know all the policies and procedures as somebody who's been there 15 years? No, of course not. It takes time. And in the same way, it takes time for believers to become mature. It takes time to get acquainted with the Bible. We, We can't just download spiritual maturity. It doesn't work like that. It takes time. So when Paul is talking about among the mature, he means mature Christians who are not able... To not only able to discern between good and evil based on scripture but also actively practice discerning good from evil and apply that truth to their daily life. They're mature believers. They're acquainted with the scriptures. They understand how to apply them in their lives. Mature believers today are, have those, are those that have sat under faithful preaching week after week, month after month, year after year. They've persevered in, in independent 
Bible study and, and Bible reading on their own. They've asked questions. They, they've sought out answers. They've, they've systematically examined their life and said, okay, how can I bring this area into submission uh, under Christ and his word? How can I bring this area into submission under Christ and his word? These are mature believers. In other words, they, they do more than confess, I believe in Jesus. That's great. We, we all start there, but we don't all stay there. In order to be mature, we've got to move, move on from that. So yet among the mature, we, meaning Paul and the other teachers of Corinth, he's identified a couple, Apollos, the Apostle Peter, we do impart wisdom, or yet among the mature, we do speak wisdom. So what is this that Paul and the other teachers are, are explaining? What is this that they impart? He calls it wisdom. We've also called it the spiritual things of God. This morning we're calling it a package. It's a comprehensive, uh, complete uh, grouping of, of, of Christian thought and teaching, everything that, that God has revealed in his word, everything that God has revealed to the Apostle Paul, he and the other apostles are then turning around and, and passing it on to the believers, and then, of course, also writing it down. And so what's what we have today? We have the New Testament as part of this package. And it includes everything, and it includes how to live rightly in this world, uh, understanding who God is, who we are, how to live rightly before God in light of the truth and reality of, of Jesus and his resurrection. How, how to live uh, as the called out church with a mission to go and make disciples. Um, living with an understanding that we are all morally accountable to God. There is a judgment coming at the end of all this. We're not just you know, in free roam here. Uh, how, how to live rightly on this world in light of the truth that God has declared. So it's a whole package of teaching. And that's what he's bringing. He says, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. He contrasts this package with, with the world, what the world teaches. What, what, what the church proclaims from faithful pulpits week after week is going to look radically different than what the world tells you and what the world is proclaiming. The, the world is not going to say, uh, Jesus is the Son of God. The world is not going to say, repent of your sins and turn to him. The world is not going to say, deny yourself and, and follow Jesus Christ and, and bring your life into submission to his word. That's not what the world's going to say. But that's what the church says. Therefore, uh, because the world's message is, is opposed to the message of Christ, it, he says those who are following the world's teaching or the wisdom of this age um, are doomed to pass away. So living apart from Jesus Christ does not end well. It ends in hell. That's what happens if we live apart from Christ. Verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom. Secret could also be translated as mystery, as it is if you've got an NIV or King James, probably. Um, mystery, when it is used in the New Testament, like in Romans 16 or Ephesians 3, usually means something that has been hidden by God from all people in the past, but has now been revealed and is made to be understood to believers by the power of the Holy Spirit. So generally, the mystery, as it is referred to in the New Testament, is the unfolding of God's redemptive plan, and with a specific emphasis on Jesus Christ. So in one sense, it is the answer to the question that, that faithful followers of God have been asking from the beginning, and that is, 
how is God going to accomplish everything he said he's going to accomplish? From, from the very beginning, after the fall, Adam and Eve, God, God came to them and said, look, there's going to be a seed of the woman. I'm going to send this deliverer. Uh, from then on, we, we saw it with Abraham. I'm going to give you descendants that are as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then throughout the rest of it, you know, Moses talked about this, this, this deliverer. Moses talked about the, the one who would be the prophet from among you, who would, who would reveal the things of God. All throughout the Old Testament, we've had the Messiah proclaimed and prophesied. So the question is, how is he going to do all that? The mystery is that he's doing it in Jesus Christ. The, the offspring, the ultimate seed of the woman is Jesus the, the, the way Abraham has that many descendants is because they're spiritual offspring. The, the, the prophet that was going to be sent is Jesus as he proclaims the, the things of God during his incarnate ministry. So this mystery is the unfolding of, of the redemptive plan of God focusing on Jesus Christ. Here's a couple of cross-references that I think will help us get an understanding for, for mystery. Uh, Romans 16, 25 and 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Likewise, Ephesians 3, 4, and 5, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. I think we start to get the picture when we see those, those extra verses. It's this mystery, it's this disclosing of the, the Messiah is Jesus. How, how is God saving his people? Through faith in Jesus. How is it possible that sins can be forgiven? Because Jesus was the sin bearer. All these things are, are disclosed and important to the New Testament, to the early church. It's not just the Jewish nation. You saw that in, the, in one of the references there. It's to, to all, all nations, all people, anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's why we can say about the Bible, Jesus Christ in the Old Testament concealed in the New Testament revealed. He's there. And we've had an opportunity to see Christ very clearly when we went through Genesis, when we went through Job. He's in the Old Testament concealed, New Testament revealed. Verse 8, the package rejected, package, package received. So he says the rulers of this age, meaning the Jewish leadership, the Roman authorities who put Jesus to death, did not understand who Jesus was. They, they didn't understand God's purposes. They did not understand the, the truth and the reality of what was happening right in front of their eyes. They didn't realize that. And then Paul proves his point with an obvious statement. If they had known who Jesus was, the Son of God, the one who pays for sin with his own blood, then they wouldn't have crucified him. No one would have done to Jesus what they did to Jesus if they knew that they needed him and they needed his mercy and his favor and his forgiveness to be saved from going to hell for eternity. No one would have done that to Jesus if they knew who Jesus was. Pretty straightforward illustration. He makes his point. I mean, the phrase, shooting yourself in the foot, comes to mind. You, you, no, no one would do that if they knew the truth. 
verses 9 and 10, this is a quotation that seems to be based off of Isaiah 64.4. And Paul's point is to show that the things of God are not able to be understood by man, unaided by the power of God. So we see the language about ears and, and eyes and, and the heart. These are all ways of communicating and understanding. We, we see things and we're aware of it. We hear things and we're aware of it. Even the language about the heart, we still use this today to communicate knowing and understanding. Maybe you've heard someone passionately say, I just know in my heart that, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is they're trying to, to, to communicate, that they, they know without a shadow of a doubt. Paul is saying no one is able to understand or know the things of God without God revealing them. Now we often associate this verse, this quote here, with uh, God and what he has prepared for his people in eternity. When we see this language about God preparing for those who love him, and then we think of Jesus teaching about going away and preparing a place for his disciples, yes, there's similar language there, and that there's no problem with using this verse. I think that's an appropriate use of this verse to refer to God preparing an eternity for those that belong to him by faith. However, the immediate context demands that we use this quotation in a way that puts the emphasis on the inability of people to understand the things of God or the, the, the package, the cross, Jesus, resurrection, apart from God revealing it to them. There has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. Paul's saying in verse 10 that God has revealed his saving truth to himself and the other faithful teachers. God revealed the, the message, the package to Paul, and then Paul is turning around and proclaiming it to the church, writing it down as the New Testament. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Of course, the only way people can know about the things of God is if God reveals them. That, that makes complete sense. Only God knows God. The only logical source of divine truth has to be God, not us. Uh, verse 11 says, For the, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. But as we're sitting here this morning, who else knows what you're thinking about right now? You do. And nobody else. Nobody else. I, I can't climb in there. You can't climb into my mind, praise God. We, we, we don't know each other's thoughts but, except for God. Likewise, he said, nobody knows the mind of God except God. That, again, it's a straightforward illustration. And this means that no person in the history of the world can claim to tell us who God is or who we are in relation to him or how we are to seek him or approach him or worship him. God has to tell us those things. And he has in his word. He's spoken. He's spoken through the prophets. He's spoken, of course, through his son. He spoke through the apostles. And we've written it down and it's been preserved for us in scriptures. Everything else, meaning all religions, all belief systems, all attempts at spirituality, all uh, of our own imagination of thinking things like, well, I'm probably a good enough person to go to heaven, so I'm not going to worry about all that religious stuff. That, all that is just our imagination. 
And we've, we've said this before, when, when we get to heaven, when, when unbelievers stand begin before heaven, God's going to say, why did you do all that? I never asked you to do that. You know that book that I gave you, though, the Bible, all that part about Jesus, about putting your faith in Jesus, because I sent my own son to die for you, that you should have been paying very close attention to. But all that other stuff, I didn't, I didn't tell you to do any of it. In fact, I not only asked you to believe in him, I commanded you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and follow him the rest of your life. And I put faithful churches on every continent so that no one was without excuse. New Testament scholar Kim Riddleberger says this, non, quote, non-Christians look for God in all the wrong places and they reject that very message, the cross wherein everything they need to know to find true wisdom is revealed. The world goes around seeking things of God and spirituality, except they don't go to the one place where God has revealed it. Verses 12 and 13 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Paul saying, look, this isn't coming from the world, this is coming from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul saying, look, I received this passage, this, excuse me, this package from God, and now we are turning around and we're, we're giving it to you. Taking spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. They're, they're taking the truth of God and they're giving it to those who are the people of God. This is how God has always operated. He communicates with someone who he's called to himself, and then that person in turn communicates it to his people. And this is what faithful preachers and teachers continue to do today, with the exception of there are no apostles. No one is receiving new revelatory information. If someone claims to be hearing from God and, and telling you new information that's not in the Bible, stop Turn around, you've made a mistake somewhere. That's not how it works. There's never going to be a a third Corinthians or or something like that that shows up. We're done. The canon is closed. But insofar as preachers and teachers take the things of God and turn around and communicate them to God's people, that's still going on. That's very much going on. That's the job of, of faithful teachers and preachers in the church today is to take the things of God, explain them, give the sense to people so that they can understand them and apply them in their lives. The word of God is preached with full explanation, illustration, and application. That's the way it works. Verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So this is it. This is the verse we were talking about at the beginning. The natural person, in other words, the unbeliever, does not accept, could also be translated as does not welcome the things of God. Unbelievers do not welcome the truth of God. In other words, they reject the package. Why? Paul tells us he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually discerned. The things of God do not make sense to someone who is not in Christ because they're spiritually discerned. God has not done a work on that person's heart yet 
They've not brought them to, to, to new life. They haven't opened their spiritual eyes yet, so they're unable to see the things of God. In fact, they're not able to move, make any move towards Christ until God does a work in their heart. The unbeliever does not welcome, they reject their folly to him, he says. Their folly to him. They seem foolish or irrelevant or quaint or, or weird or unnecessary. Maybe, maybe they're a distraction from what really matters in life. You know, I, I work hard, I, I, I play hard, and I've, I've got my career to work on, and I've got my personal goals that I'm trying to achieve, and I've got my, my projects and my hobbies. You know, why would I spend time on the things of God? It's kind of a distraction. Or maybe it's irrelevant. You know, at one point in history, uh, maybe those things mattered, you know, when there were things like feudal lords and the church was the center of the culture and the community, but we're modern now. I mean, come on. We drive cars with power windows. We've got cell phones. We fly from city to city. We don't, we don't need that anymore. We've advanced. Or maybe in an annoyance. Because the, the morality of God and his word convicts people. And people generally, especially if you're, you're an unbeliever and you're opposed to things of God, generally don't want to be told they are sinners and that they are morally accountable to God and that there is a judgment coming. They want to be told, I'm a good person. I'm a real stand-up guy. Tell, tell me instead that God is pleased with me just the way I am and I don't have to change at all. That's what I want to hear. So it's kind of an annoyance. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but he is himself to be judged by no one. This is talking about believers continually judging all things in the sense that we talked about earlier. Everything passes through that filter of being in Christ. Everyone who's in Christ looks, looks at a decision or something that's going on in the world or, or something in their life, and they say, okay, what does God's word say about that? What's the proper way to respond to that? How do I move forward here? This is saying Christians think like Christians. Christians think through the lens of Scripture, not through the lens of the world. But they themselves are judged by no one, and this is a reference to what the immature believers in Corinth were doing. They were making judgments on the different speakers. They were judging them. And then verse 16 is a quote from Isaiah, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? This tells us what we should already know. We're not smarter than God. God teaches us. We don't teach God. God tells us what is good, right, and true. We don't decide for ourselves. God tells us who he is, who we are, how to live rightly before him. We don't get to make those calls. We're, we're the creature. God's the creator. But we have the mind of Christ. God, by his spirit, has revealed things, his things to his people, this package so that we know what God wants us to know. And one thing he has told us is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's at the, the center, that's the kernel of this, of this package. But we have the mind of Christ. A package from God. So if we had to summarize this 6 through 16 section, we could say this. Paul is telling the raw Christians at Corinth that he and the other teachers speak the truth of God that has been given to them by God for the purpose of teaching it to the people of God. 
This revelation or spiritual truth, this package, is not welcomed by unbelievers because unbelievers cannot understand it. It is only understood by those who are in Christ and have the Spirit of Christ working in them. Well, how do we know, first of all, how do we know this is still true today? And I think the answer is is as straightforward and as plain as Paul's illustration of why it was true back then. If, if the Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders and the people and the crowds who called out for the crucifixion of Jesus, if they understood who Jesus was, then they wouldn't have done that. It's the same thing today. If, if the, the unbelievers in the world really understood who Jesus was and their need for him to, to cover their sin, and their need for a savior to, to save them from going to hell, if they actually knew that, then they would be worshiping Christ. We would see faithful churches being flooded with, with all these people, but they're not. They, they are not connected to God. They're not connected to his church. They're not connected to his son. So that's how we know that it still is not understood. We've got all these unbelievers running around who aren't a part of Christ's church. But we need to answer that one question. If you remember, I asked this. How does someone make the jump from rejecting this package to receiving it and believing it. Because if you've been following along, it, this kind of seems like a catch-22 situation. Right? Have you, have you made that observation? Look at verse 14. The natural person, or the unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is saying that the unbeliever, who does not have the Spirit of Christ in them, cannot understand the things of God. But the Bible also tells us that people are saved through the preaching of the word and the hearing of that and the responding in faith. So unbelievers hear the things of God proclaimed and believe in Jesus. Uh, the, the church, if nothing else, is, has a proclamation ministry. Look at Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's a proclamation. And that proclamation continued after Jesus ascended through his disciples. And it continues today in his church. We are proclaiming church. Uh, Likewise, Romans 10, 13, 14, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You can connect the chain backwards there. Look, someone needs to be preaching, but they're going to hear that. They hear the word and then they believe. So if the only way to understand the things of God is if you have the spirit of God residing in you as a believer... But the only way to become a believer is to hear and understand the things of God so you can believe in them. Doesn't that seem kind of impossible? What's going on? Isn't this saying that the only way to open the package is if you've already opened the package? Doesn't it seem that way? Yes, it does sound impossible to move from rejecting to receiving. In Mark chapter 18, Jesus was asked the question, just flat out, who can be saved? And Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. 
Once again, I think we can agree, at the heart of this package, it includes this all-inclusive teaching, I mean, New Testament, how we're to live and think, I mean, all that, but at the, at the center, the kernel of that, is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It's salvation through faith in Christ. Jesus said this, John 6, 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And then four verses later, He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's that catch-22 again. Anyone who believes is going to be saved. Oh, and by the way, you can't be believing unless God first draws you. And that's the answer. It is impossible. Sinful, fallen man does not believe, perceive, or receive that, that package on their own. God does a work. God must do a work in someone's heart. It's called regeneration, bringing someone to new life, giving them the willingness and the ability to understand and respond in faith to that message. Apart from that special operation of the Holy Spirit, apart from that work of God, it does not happen. This is the difference between a general call and an effectual call. So the general call, remember, is the proclamation of the gospel that goes out. Let's say there are 100 people in a room and, and 100 people hear a straightforward message of the gospel. They, they, they hear the message. They hear, look, we're all sinners. We, we've, all, we've all inherited a sin nature from Adam. In Adam, we all die. That's what scripture says. But we've also added to it our own sin. None of us are, are perfect. Let's not fool ourselves. We all have broken ten, all ten commandments. Okay? Remember, it's not just the act. It's, it's at the heart level. Jesus says, if you've, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, then you're guilty of adultery. Okay, guilty. If you've, have any of us completely, perfectly honored our father and mother? Have any of us perfectly worshipped God? Have any of us perfectly kept the Lord's day? Have any of us ever told the, the least amount of, of untruth, any, any little bit of a lie? Have we ever stolen anything? Have we ever coveted something that's, that's desiring something that doesn't belong to you? Yes, 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 yes. We've all broken all Ten Commandments. We stand as sinners. That's called sin, and we've done it. So we're sinners. God must punish sinners. And he does that by bringing judgment on every single person for their sins, and that's an eternity in hell. God, who is infinitely holy, must punish sin with an infinite punishment. But the good news is that Jesus Christ was sent by God God will punish some for their sins justly, and he's just in doing that. That's not unjust. But he has also chosen to save some people, and he has done that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He sent his son. Jesus was the only one who did live a perfect life. He, all those things we just talked about, he did. He never had an impure thought run through his mind. He did honor his mother and father perfectly. He was also born of a woman, so he was a, he was a real man, but he was not born of a father. He didn't have an earthly father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he didn't start off with that sin nature that every single one of us are start off with, that we have inherited from Adam. He didn't inherit that. So he has the, he's the only one with the opportunity to set it right, and that's exactly what he came to do. He came to undo what Adam did. Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Adam broke the law and sinned, Jesus kept the law and never sinned. So Jesus has achieved this perfect record of righteousness. 
And God says to everyone who looks in faith to my son, I will credit or impute that perfect record of righteousness to that person. And then the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross, I will accept as payment for your sin so that I don't have to punish you. I took that punishment out on Jesus. He took your place. That makes sense. Now I get it. Let's say we've got 100 people in the room and 100 people hear that message. The only people who respond to that message, the only people who are convicted of their sin and say, wait, wait, I am the sinner. I do need Jesus. I don't know what I've been thinking all this time. And they turn to him in faith. Those are the people that God is effectually calling. But apart from that effectual call, the message is just going to go in here or out the other. Blah, blah, blah. Another preacher. I've heard this before. What time's done? It's not going to make an impact. It's not going to be received. It'll be rejected. It'll be heard. But it won't be received. Look at Acts 16.14. This is a biblical example. This is within the context of Paul proclaiming the gospel to many people. And then it says this. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So she was interested in the things of God. She hadn't put her faith in Christ. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by God. Interesting, it says what was said by God. It was Paul Paul preaching. The Lord opened her heart. Effectual call. Bringing her to new life. Giving her the ability and willingness to respond. That's a biblical illustration. Let me give you a modern illustration. I was at a conference several years ago talking to an unbeliever. And I presented the gospel. I talked about how people are saved through faith in Christ. I talked about everything I just said a moment ago, the blood of Christ, our need for a Savior. And they said, no. They <laughs> kind of chuckled. No, that's not how it works. And they said, let, let me get this straight. God saves sinners and he sends good people to hell. And I said, yeah, that's, that's what the Bible teaches. He says, No. No, that's not how it works. He was thinking through a worldly lens. He was saying, okay, wait a minute, you're telling me prostitutes, um, serial killers, they're going to get saved if they repent and believe in Jesus Christ, but the good people aren't? And see, what what he was thinking was good people, worldly lens, good people. Oh, those people that, that haven't committed murder, those people who have generally led a good life or they're, they're viewed as a, a good guy around the office and a good neighbor to have those people he didn't, he didn't understand there is no such thing as a good person that's what Jesus says Jesus said no one is good except God alone spiritual lens we're all sinners no one has done enough good to earn their way into heaven but he was looking at it through a worldly lens and that just didn't make sense to him People with notorious sins being saved and then, and then the good person who lives next door that offers you fresh vegetables from their garden in the summer, they're, they're going to hell. Um, unless they turn and repent and believe in Jesus, yes. 
It doesn't make sense. Part of the reason is they don't see the need. It's like this. Let's say you get a, a big cardboard box on your front doorstep, and you thought, I don't remember ordering anything, and you brought it in, and you, you set it down, and you open it up, and you started to feel around, and there was this plastic thing with bubbles on it, and you, you pulled it out, and it spread out over your entire living room, and you realized it was a pool cover. And you thought, why did I get a pool cover? I don't have a pool in my backyard. I have no need for this. Re return it. Reject it. Faith in Jesus Christ is like, is like a pool cover to an unbeliever. They don't, they don't see the need. They don't realize, yes, I do have a pool. I have a big in-ground 12-foot pool of sin in my backyard, and it does need covering with the covering, atoning blood of Jesus Christ. They just don't see it. They don't see a need for it. In fact, the unbeliever would, would argue very stringently that they're not a bad person. They'd say, no, seriously, ask anybody. I'm a good person. I'm thoughtful. I'm honest. I donate time and money to charity. You know that thing at the checkout where they ask you to round up if it's changed? I do that. I give them 83 cents. I'm a very giving person. I obey the law. I pay my taxes. What does God want from me? Perfection. He wants perfection. He wants perfect moral righteousness. He wants not one blemish, not one sin in your entire life, not even in your thought life. Do you need Jesus now? Apart from Christ, we are sinners unjustified. We are sinners unforgiven. And Paul says, forget it. If you think you're going to earn your way to heaven, he says, we've been justified by faith. He said, by works of the law, no one will be justified. We cannot do good things to earn favor with God. It doesn't happen. The blood of Jesus is not some unwanted and unneeded pool cover. Every single person needs the righteousness of Jesus Christ to cover their sin. When God's Spirit effectually calls someone, this reality is understood, and the sinner turns to the Savior. I think we all have someone that, that we know that is, that is in this place yet. They, they've, they've rejected the package. And so I want to close, and then during the prayer time, I want us to all pray for one person that God lays on our heart. They're sinners just like us. They need Jesus just like us. Let's pray for that person as we close today. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge the truth of your word. It's, it is inerrant. It's infallible. It's, it, it is literally your words to us. And we also acknowledge the fact that, that your word teaches us right here that these things are spiritually discerned. Father, we all have someone close to us, either a family member or a friend or a co-worker or, or someone we know who's not in Christ. And just for just a second, we want to lift them up by name. So Father, let's, let's do that right now. Father, we pray that you would make your word real to these people, that you would effectually call them that you would do a work on their heart to bring them to new life in Christ. Open their eyes 
to see the truth of your word and their need for a Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.